I want to tell you about Peggy Lean Bartell. Peggy Lean, that's a funny name. She was, for 30 years, she was the secretary in the embassy of Ghana in Washington, D.C., and um, she, she did very normal things every day. She answered the phone for her boss. She took lots of notes. She sat in meetings. When she left, she did laundry and household chores, and she drove her 1992 Honda all around Washington, D.C. She had a really normal life. Well, then one day she stepped onto an airplane, and she landed in her hometown of Ghana in the year 2009, And when she did, she was greeted as royalty. She was welcomed by a chauffeur. She was ushered into an eight-bedroom palace. And she was given her own personal chef. That's because Peggy Lean Bartels is the king of Ghana. The king of Ghana. (laughs) What happened was that in 2009, she was awakened at 4 a.m. by a phone call. The phone call told her that in her hometown of, uh, it's called Ottawa, where there are 7,000 residents, the 90-year-old king had died. And so uh, in, in his, in, to replace him, they went through an ancient ritual. And it seems kind of silly, but it's, it's very sacred to them. What they do when, when a king dies is that they take a bottle of schnapps. And they pour it on the ground, and while they do that, they call out the name of the 25 closest relatives of the king. And then as the steam rises from the schnapps being poured at the ground, apparently the ancestors determine by the way the steam rises who the next replacement is going to be. And when they said Pegaline's name, it was her. So she gets a phone call at 4 a.m. telling her that she is the new king. Now, of course, she's like, what are you talking about? I am a woman, right? Shouldn't I be the queen? And they said, actually, that position isn't open. The only position that is open is king. (laughs) And they told her she had to accept it. So she landed in her home country of Ghana. She was welcomed by praise and adoration as the new king. She was, for 10 days, they went through the coronation festivities. They had parades and they had feasts and festivals and they crowned her in her beautiful native um, garments. And when those 10 days were over, you know what she did? She got on an airplane and she flew back to Washington, D.C. to resume her job as secretary. Because after all, that was her job. And she says, maybe in one day, I'll go back and I'll fulfill my daily commitments to being king of Ghana. But for now, she's secretary by day and royalty by night. (laughs) And I was thinking about us. I was thinking about our lives and how we too, because Ephesians is helping us to understand our royal identity in Christ, that, you know, here... We have a lot of different roles we play, but we are royalty in Christ. And as we launch into this study of Ephesians, and as we just sang about this amazing grace, we are given so many blessings in our inheritance in him. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how in Christ, believers are rich in spiritual blessings. So if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Ephesians chapter 1? We're going to launch in. We're going to start by talking about this amazing word, grace and peace, the way that Paul greets his readers. 
First of all, you have to know that in, it was in 62 AD when four men walked out of Paul's prison cell with letters in their hands that they were preparing to hand deliver to people to read. One of those men was Epaphroditus. He was from Philippi. He had the letter to the Philippians. Tychicus was from Ephesus, and he had the letter for the Ephesians. Epaphras was from Colossae, and he had the letter from, for the Colossians. And Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae, and he had the letter to Philemon. And today, these four letters are encompassed in the Word of God, and they're known as the prison epistles of Paul. They're the letters that he wrote while he was in prison in Rome. He was under house arrest, he was chained to a Roman guard day and night, and he was awaiting to hear his sentence from after a hearing that he had had before Nero, who was the Roman Caesar at the time. So at this time, Paul is, he's appealing his case, he's waiting for a response, and he's writing these letters to these people that he dearly loves from these places that he's been to share the gospel. I can just imagine Paul's great love, especially for the people in Ephesus, and as he's writing to them in chains and he's waiting for his fate, we just see his heart of love being poured out for them. We remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 20, where um, he spoke about the Ephesian elders. And we read about his great love for these elders and for the church that they had planted in Ephesus. And we know that, that this church was likely one of the most advanced congregations in terms of spiritual development. So I think that's why Paul knows that he can really speak deeply to them about these spiritual truths. He knows that they have a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity, and so he goes deep and profound in the things that he writes. And he knows that the people in Ephesus had developed a very sincere faith. They loved the Lord Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he wants them to know that Jesus so loved the church that he gave himself for her. And so he's writing to them and expressing these deep truths. So he starts off with this greeting, and he says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul, right away, he identifies himself as an apostle in Jesus Christ. And we know that Paul wasn't one of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. So you might be wondering, what is the difference then between an apostle and a disciple? Well, an apostle simply means someone who is sent by God with a message. So we know that Paul was sent by God to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. A disciple means a learner or a student. So when we talk about the 12 disciples, we're thinking about them in terms of men who, who sat at Jesus' feet, who learned from him, who had a teacher-student relationship with him. So the 12 disciples were also apostles. They were also commissioned to go out and share the good news of the gospel. Somebody can be um, an apostle, but not all disciples are apostles. So not everybody who sat at Jesus' feet was commissioned with the task of going out and sharing the good news of the gospel in an official way. But Paul, we know, was um, sent out with this, with this mission. And as we think about Paul's life story, we remember that this wasn't the plan that he had for his life at all. You know, if he was doing his life plan, being an apostle was not one of his categories. He, was, um, he wasn't even dreaming about a career path as a missionary. He was on a very different career path before he was intersected with Christ in the road to Damascus, and he had that radical encounter that changed everything for him. It's interesting because Paul's encounter with Christ is so completely different than any other 
person that we read in the Bible about because he met the risen Lord after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And he goes on to talk about how he received direct revelation from Christ even after that time. He writes about that in Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 12. He talks about how he was called by God, and he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul was an authorized spokesperson for the Lord, and he's writing now to the saints in Ephesus. That word saint is kind of a word that we think of in a high liturgical church atmosphere, but it simply means somebody who has been set apart unto God, somebody who's been sanctified, somebody who belongs to Jesus Christ. And, of course, he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, but he's also writing to all the saints throughout all the generations, and that means he's writing to us because the message that he has for the Ephesians is also for anyone who is a saint, anyone who is set apart unto God, who is being sanctified in Christ. And so Paul opens this, with a, this letter with a warm, light greeting to all his brothers and sisters, and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about how we just sung about grace, but I think about how grace is just at the heart of Paul's gospel. The, it's, it's, it's the fact, I think grace is the defining feature of Paul's life. It was by grace that God arrested Paul on that road. As Paul was going out to extinguish what he believed were blasphemers, when he was really going out to defend God's honor, he was going out to defend the Jewish faith, it was by grace that Jesus appeared to him and showed him the truth, the reality of what he believed. And by grace, God actually opened his eyes, his spiritual eyes that had been blinded. And Paul then understood in that moment how much God loved him, how kind God was toward him to reveal this truth. And now Paul has this really beautiful living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think about how, I think about Paul and I think about what he knew about God. He was such a student of the Old Testament. He knew, he knew the scriptures in, by memory. He was so well-educated. He knew how God had described himself to Moses in the cleft of that rock. He knew that God had said this to Moses about himself, that he said, the Lord, the Lord, remember we looked at this so often last year, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He knew that here. He knew from his memorization of Scripture and from the stories of the Old Testament that this is who God was and who God is. But now, after he's seen God face to face, he knows it here. The God who's gracious and kind and abounding in love, who would intersect his life and show him the reality of who he is, who Christ is and who Paul is in Christ. I mean, Paul was, he personally encountered an amazing experience of grace, amazing grace. Paul knows experientially this grace to the depth of his soul, and this grace profoundly changed Paul's life. 
As we read through Paul's writings, whether in Ephesians or anywhere else, grace, 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 grace is what we hear over and over again. Paul knows grace. Do you know grace? Do you know the God of grace and peace? Is this the God that you know? Because the truth is that God is inviting you to enjoy a relationship of grace and peace with him. Now, I think sometimes we don't know the God of grace and peace. I think sometimes we think of God as this distant king who's ruling over the universe. Maybe he's got his feet kicked up on a big royal ottoman, and he's looking down at all his people, and certainly he's too busy to care about our needs or to think about us. Sometimes that's how we think of God, far away, ruling bigger things than our little problems, not caring about the struggles of our hearts. Or sometimes we think about God as a stern and demanding father, somebody who's frequently disappointed with us. We might feel guilty because we're not doing enough to make him happy. We're not coming to church every Sunday. We're not reading our Bibles every day. We're not praying enough. And we, we start to think that we're always disappointing him because we're just not doing enough or we're not, we're not enough to make him happy. Maybe we feel unworthy of his love because of, of past sin or even present sin or struggles that we're having. We feel like we don't measure up. And sometimes even we project our own insecurities onto God. We, we feel unworthy of his love, and so we actually draw away from him. We hide from him. We feel like he can't love us the way that we are and that he doesn't really care. Or sometimes we just feel so anxious and scared and um, confused about life and faith. We don't even know how to engage with him. We don't think he knows how to engage with us. And I just want us to remember that Paul was messed up in his thinking, too, about God. He, before he encountered the, the grace of God on the road to Damascus, remember, he was a guy who was bound up in rules, and he was bound up in to-dos, and he had all of these religious practices that he was trying to follow, that he believed wholeheartedly were his way of drawing close to God. But then he met the God of grace face-to-face. And only then did he experience real peace, real peace. So we have to return not to the God of our imagination or to the God of our fears or the God of our insecurities or the God that we think is most closely resembling our own earthly fathers. We have to turn to the word of God and we have to continually remind ourselves who he is because of, by what he says about himself and believe in that God and praise and worship him. Grace is what we need to remember. That word grace, a good way to think about what it means, it does mean unmerited favor. Um, it means unearned favor. But it also is a great way to remember it is through the acronym um, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. God's Riches at Christ's Expense. We receive this as a gift, and we respond to it in faith. And Paul, he so loves to talk about grace. In this letter alone, um, 12 times he mentions grace, and then nine times he mentions, mentions peace. But if you look at all of his writings, 95 times he talks about grace. So this is something that is dear and near to his heart in his understanding of God. And he knows that, that his faith in Jesus was a gift. There was nothing he could do to have deserved it, quite on the contrary. And that's why one of the most famous verses that we look at in Ephesians is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
I think that's why Paul begins this letter with a prayer for us to receive this grace and peace. So let's look at um, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. In the next few verses, in verse 3, which is the key verse for the whole passage that we're looking at, the whole book of Ephesians, this is the key verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the key verse. It's the verse that tells us, summarizes the whole theme about spiritual blessings. So what are spiritual blessings? What are they? Well, they are gifts from God that demonstrate his love and his favor towards us. They're blessings that come to believers in Christ. That's why we're going to talk so often about in Christ, in Christ. These are blessings that come to believers in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So some of these blessings we're already really aware of. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are blessings that we receive when the Holy Spirit is alive in our lives, working to change us and refine us and shape us. You know, you've heard them. They come from Galatians. Blessings are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we experience God working in our lives, we find ourselves transformed in these areas. We feel love for the unlovely. We feel gratitude for things that we never saw before. We, we experience peace and patience, kindness that comes out of us in ways that we've never even thought of. We, we are surprised even ourselves when we see ourselves responding in life through these blessings of the fruit of the Spirit. But what happens now in this passage is that Paul goes on to describe seven more spiritual blessings. And we're going to be looking at these a little bit each week. Let me just give you an outline of what they are, an overview. Blessing number one is that you've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We're going to look at that one today. Blessing number two, you've been welcomed into God's family, adopted as daughters of the king. Blessing number three, you're going to look at next week, all of your sins have been forgiven. Blessing number four, you're going to look at next week, that God has revealed the plans for the future. The mysteries of his will have been revealed. Blessing number five is that you've been appointed to demonstrate his truth and bring him glory through your daily life. Blessing number six is that you've been blessed with the revelation of God's gospel truth, which you heard and believed and secured your salvation. And blessing number seven, you've been marked and sealed into God's possession by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Seven spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Deep things that come to us because of what Christ did on the cross for us. All of these blessings demonstrate how passionately God loves you and how passionately he loves me. And if you're even slightly aware of these spiritual blessings in your life, it's because the Holy Spirit has revealed them to you. They're things that we can't comprehend apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what, who works to communicate the truth to us and the reality of God's love for us in a way that we're just instinctively aware of it. We're instinctively aware of how deeply we're loved and how deeply we are cared for by him. So as we, as we launch into the rest of this passage, Paul is just spilling out 
passionately these blessings upon us. And as we start with verse 4, this is actually the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. You'll find that when you study Paul's writings, he just keeps going and going and going and going. And so to even wrap our minds around it, we have to break it down into little pieces. So blessing number one is that we have been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. Blessing number one. And it starts here in verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this verse is a hot topic in theological circles. It's two little words that cast different shadows of meaning upon this verse. The two words are in him. So the question is, is this a verse about how we are chosen in him? Or is this a verse about why we are chosen in him? And Rhonda and I, Rhonda, who's back on the soundboard, she and I are in seminary, in a seminary class together, and we are studying this, this the implications of this passage for an entire semester in school, and it is mind-blowing. So one of the curses of preparing this message is that I know too much to be able <laughs> to be able to know even how to speak to this topic, but I've tried to simplify it for you. First of all, I think that we um, we read this blessing. And the first thing we think about is election. We, we go to that place of thinking, oh, this is about how we've been chosen in him. And it's easy to make that assumption if we don't read the rest of the verse. But the rest of the verse really indicates that this is actually not about how God's children are chosen. It's about the purpose of being in God's family, which is to be holy and blameless before him. It's about what happens when we're in God's family, and that is that we become holy and blameless before him. And we know that it was the plan of God since before the foundation of the world that his son Jesus would die on a cross and to pay for the sins, the penalty of sin for people. And that for those who believed, who put their faith in him, that penalty would be removed, that that penalty would be paid for, and there would be forgiveness. There would be new life. And for those who receive this gift by grace through faith, they become children of God. They are now holy and blameless before God because of what Christ has done. Christ paid the debt of sin. And so that's that's what this verse is saying. It's saying that, that Christ died so that we might, who believed in him, become holy and blameless before him. But I realize that this verse, for many of you, have stirred up a lot of thoughts about election. So let's talk about it, okay? Let's talk about it. First of all, there are many different views on this question. There's lots of different views about election. How are we chosen in to be in Christ? Um, let me tell you one thing that everybody agrees on. Everybody agrees on this. God decided before the creation of the world to give every spiritual blessing to those who are in Christ. Everybody agrees on that. Before the creation of the world, God decided that he was going to give every spiritual blessing to those who are in Christ. No dispute about that. So the debate is over how do people get to be in Christ? Does God decide who gets to be in Christ? Or do people decide who gets to be in Christ? Or is it a combination of the two? So the Calvinist perspective is that God decides God's the one who chooses. He decides on the basis of his own purposes, which are a mystery to us, 
who gets to be in Christ and who doesn't get to be in Christ. And so when he leads somebody towards salvation, it's effectual in the sense that if he's leading someone towards salvation, it will happen. That person will bring their heart into agreement with his and will come to saving faith in Christ. So if basically if God decrees it, it will happen. He decides who becomes part of his family. Now, so the, the denominations that, that really embrace this, there are many Baptist denominations who embrace this way of thinking. There are many Presbyterian denominations hold to this, um, this way, the Calvinist view. And also most Reformed churches hold to this view. Now, the other view is the Wesleyan-Arminian view. And this view says that people decide if they are going to belong to God's family. So they believe that people decide how they respond. So God draws people unto himself, and people decide how they're going to respond to that drawing, that wooing of God, and that God doesn't interfere. He lets that decision rest on people and their own choice. Um, So his leading is considered to be resistible. He leads, but we can stiff-arm him. We can resist him. So that view is held by Methodists, General Baptists or other sects of Baptists believe that view, Nazarenes, and Wesleyans. But now there's another view that actually encompasses both, and it's called Calminian. A little bit of Calvinist and a little bit of Arminian. And so this view believes that both are at play. And actually, this is the view that I hold. After much study and contemplation, this is the view that seems most reasonable to me from Scripture and from my experience in life. And that is that God does choose some people for his divine purposes. I think Saul is a perfect example of somebody who was divinely appointed by God to um, believe. And the purpose was that he was bringing the gospel out to the Gentiles with a kind of historical background and training and knowledge. He was the perfect person to do that. And I think as we look through scripture, there are certain people who had some sense of, of calling that was irresistible. But I think for others, he gives us a resistible calling. He comes to us by his grace. He gives us the opportunity to choose. And for some, they receive and they believe. And for others, they resist and go their own way. So I think it's a combination of both. Now, I think that all people are drawn in some capacity towards God. Romans speaks of that, that there's evidence of God even in the world around us. And so I think that all people are responsible for their choices to either believe or to resist him. Um, I think that also God knows. He has foreknowledge. He knows who will believe and who will receive these blessings that he offers in Christ. And I know that God, his desire is that all will come to know him and that no one will perish. We see that throughout scripture. John 3.16 as an example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I also know that the Bible promises that anyone who seeks will find. Matthew 7, 8 says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So I know that God's heart is that no one would perish, and all would come to him in faith. But now, let's go back and talk about what does it mean then to be holy and blameless before him? Because holiness, 
Because I look at this and I think, well, I'm still a sinner. Maybe you're not, and that's awesome, but I don't feel like I'm always holy and blameless. Certainly I know that I'm not. So holy actually means wholeness. It means, it, it reminds us that God is at work in human history to restore and to heal and to redeem the places in life that are broken, to bring wholeness, to bring peace, shalom, back into his world. And he is at work, in the, and I think when we think about this, it's, it's easier to kind of understand it in the physical realm, right? We know, like, if we think about our physical bodies, when we have injuries, you know, we work to heal and to um, bring wholeness. I had a knee injury last year, and I've been working for 18 months to, to build strength back into my legs. My body feels broken and weak, and so I can understand it in the physical realm, but it's in the spiritual realm as well. In the sense that um, when, when God is at work in our lives, he is working to, to he, he comes into our lives, he brings wholeness into our lives through our relationship with Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, we are right with him. We're in right relationship with him. There is a spiritual completeness because of our relationship with him. And blameless, blameless doesn't mean sinless because Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when we accept the righteousness and forgiveness of Christ, we are declared blameless before God. It's not that we are without sin, though we do sin less as we are sanctified over time. We, we are changed. Those fruits of the Spirit take root and we don't lash out in anger. We're not as unkind. We're not as unforgiving. We are changed. We do sin less over time as we mature in faith. But, but before God, we are blameless before him because Christ took the blame for our sin. He bore our sins on the cross. He paid the punishment. We are forgiven fully, past, present, and future. And so when we stand before him, God sees us through the lens of Christ. He sees us forgiven. He sees us as holy, set apart unto him, belonging to him as children of God. And he looks at us and he doesn't see our sin because our sins are forgiven. And there, he says that they're as far as the east is from the west or that they've been placed behind his back. He sees us as children. And that is an amazing, amazing blessing that when we are, in the, we are in our relationship with God, we are holy and blameless before him because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. The second thing that we can rejoice in as a blessing is that we've been adopted into his family. It says in the next verse that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, and I included daughters, through Jesus Christ. So there's this, we know as we studied last year, there's this rich relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This rich, loving relationship. And we have been adopted into that. We have been, I, I was just thinking about how, I don't know if you guys remember when you have little, you have some of you have little kids, whenever I would give my husband a hug, or he'd give me a hug when Spencer was little, he'd run right in the middle. <laughs> and we would be hugging and he'd be down here wanting to be a part of that love. And that's what we're invited. We're adopted into that relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and we're in the midst of that. We've been invited into the family in such a beautiful way. Adoption means leaving one family 
And then, which, which we know, we've been born into the family of Adam. We've been born into the human race. We're bound by sin and brokenness because of that. But we've left, we leave that family, we're adopted into the family of God, where we are seen as righteous and holy and blameless because of what Christ has done. So we're no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer bound by that identity. We have this new identity. We're part of a new family, a new society of people. And God loves us with the same love that he has for his own son, for Jesus. And the cool thing is we're, we're not like children who have to grow up before we receive our inheritance. We are, we, are, we are immediately able to access our inheritance in Christ. We have all of this spiritual wealth, like Paul's going to be telling us every week, here's a blessing and here's a blessing and here's a blessing. And all of that is ours right now. Right now we're holy and blameless before the Lord. Right now we're adopted into his family. It's not like, well, when I see him in heaven, these are the treasures I receive. It's now. This is our identity now. This is who we are. And why has God lavished us with these first two blessings in Christ? Well, it says in the next verse, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Simply because it brings him pleasure. It's the purpose of his will. He delights in lavishing love upon his children because remember his character is love and grace and compassion and kindness and justice but forgiving of sin. And so he delights in lavishing his children with love. I think that when God looks at us, he, God is outside of time. He, sees, he knows the past. He knows the future, the future. He knows the present. He sees all things. And I think that when God looks at us, he not only sees us where we are right now in our spiritual journey, but he knows the, the end. He knows what he's intended for us, the gifts he's given us. He sees us in our full maturity in Christ. It's kind of the way that we look at our kids sometimes and we, we know they're, they're just little rascals today, but we see in them this potential. We see in them who they're going to become. We see, we see that we envision them all grown up in maturity. And I feel like God looks at us in the same way. He's like, you know, I see you now where you are right here, but I know who I've created you to be. I know my purpose for you. I know how you're going to respond to the, the good gifts of, of my word and prayer and community. And I see how you're going to grow up. I know what my plans are for you. And that brings him pleasure. That brings him great satisfaction. He loves to see us mature and, and fulfill the purpose that he has for our lives. And so the truth that I want to share is that God is inviting you to receive the blessings of your spiritual inheritance in Christ. He's inviting you to receive these. You have, if you have received Christ as your Savior, you are set apart unto him. You are sanctified. You are a saint. You belong to him. You are deemed holy and blameless before him. You are sealed to him by the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. You have a new identity. And if you don't know Jesus yet as your Savior, this is what awaits you. It's so exciting. It's a different kind of life. It's a different identity. But I want to just challenge us as we close to think about, are we really living? Have we really received these spiritual blessings? Are we really living in this identity? Are we living like women who are who are changed and are royal in our identity before the Lord? 
Or are we living in spiritual poverty? We talked about this last week, and I want us to return to this thought today to think about this a little bit more. And maybe you're thinking, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm living like a pauper? Well, let me, let me give you some things to think about. We are living like paupers if we are living in bondage to repeating sin that Christ has given us the power to be free from. So will you think with me, are you still living like a prisoner to sin? Maybe it's an addiction, but maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a thinking pattern. Maybe it's something you just haven't been able to shake. Maybe it's a temptation that you haven't chosen to resist. In Christ, you and I have the power to break habitual sins. And if we don't partake of that, we're living like paupers. We're living like paupers if we're living under the heavy burden of guilt and shame regarding past sin. Are there sins in our past that are weighing us down with low self-esteem and depression? Because we're forgiven. That's a gift that's meant to set us free. We can actually lift our eyes upon Jesus and receive forgiveness and receive healing for sin. And we can move on with our lives. We're a new creation in Christ The Lord has placed all of our sins behind his back. He doesn't look at us through that lens anymore. So why do we continue to call them into view? Oh, but God, I did this, and I'm this, and I've done this. We continue to call him back. And he's like, you're holy and blameless in my sight. We're living like paupers if we're only thinking about the here and now. If we're not setting our minds and hearts on eternal things. God has given us great wisdom in his word great um, ability to understand a biblical view of our world and great gifts to use in the community of his church. Are we using those? Are we serving him? Are we setting our minds on the heavenlies? We're living like paupers if we're not giving the Holy Spirit dominion in our lives. If we're fighting with him for control and we're refusing to allow him to speak into our lives, if we're not yielding to him, I love that what he does is he has this beautiful way of turning our impatience into patience, our temper into peace, our sadness into joy, our edginess into gentleness, our selfishness into love, and gives us self-control. Anybody in here need more (laughs) self-control? I do. I need a lot more self-control. So in Christ, believers have all the spiritual blessings. And, you know, by day... You might be a mom, a wife, a secretary, a teacher, a coach, or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But by night, you're royalty, and so am I. We are daughters of the king, and Paul's going to teach us how to live like it.